When you have a complaint, it is important to find someone with enough authority before you offload your complaint. Am I right? Because you may be talking to somebody at the store who is sympathetic, they're friendly, but they have no power. And so you are really just spinning your wheels, right? You're just talking, and that is not going to go anywhere. I worked at a hospital while I was in college in the, you know, high medical profession of the cafeteria, mostly cleaning pots and pans. It was glorious. And I would go around the hospital, and occasionally I would walk into a room, and a person there would offload a tirade of complaints that they had about their doctor. They weren't getting enough pain medication. They hadn't seen their doctor since 6 in the morning, and he said he was going to stop by, and what are you going to do about it? And I said, ma'am, I'm going to take your dinner tray and go and make sure it's clean. That's what I'm going to do about it. I'll find someone else that you can talk to. That's what I'll do. Call the nurse in, and the nurse says, I'm not going in there because she wants the doctor, and the doctor's not here. She wants someone in a position of authority. And if you wanted to think about a theme in the Gospel of Mark, that is, what is Mark trying to stress in these first eight chapters that you have been reading through and following along as we head toward Easter? And if you thought of it like a hilltop, with chapter 8 being just kind of right in the middle of Mark, both in terms of the number of chapters, there are 16 chapters, and the math scholars in the room know 8 is half of 16. But it also represents a real shift. So the first half of Mark is dealing with this question, who's in charge? What does it mean to have authority? Who has the authority? You'll remember that text that we look at where Jesus said, look, you can't go and rob a house unless you had someone big enough to tie up the strongest guy in the house. You don't commit a robbery, right? If you're three feet tall without a lick of muscle on you, you don't go and try to rob somebody who's huge. You would need somebody stronger than the strongest person in the house. And in fact, that same phrase is going to be used today in a section we're going to look at. So we're looking at Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. But before we kind of land on this is our main text, I want to look at the text that comes right after this. Mark chapter 5, 1 and following. Jesus is in a region of the Gerizim. Um, Or, depending on what it says, um, Jesus is in the region that is now called the Golan Heights. You may have heard about it in the news. It's a heavily contested piece of land in between Israel and Syria. Israel took possession of it in 1967, and it's been a sticky point for the neighbors ever since. So Jesus is in this region that is a Gentile region. The key point for Mark is that this is not Israel. It's outside of the land. The people here are raising pigs, which if you know anything about Jewish people, right... Do Jewish people eat pigs? See, you guys are Bible scholars. You got it down, right? No, no, Jewish people don't eat pigs. So you get, meaning if you're raising pigs, not only are you probably not Jewish, but you have to have a market that's what? It's not Jewish. Not going to be a real high resale value for pork down in Jerusalem. Not going to go well. Like even taking the pig down there would cause a massive amount of controversy. So what Mark is making clear in this section is that Jesus is outside of Israel. And there is a man there with an impure spirit. So we have somebody there and it just says we're an unclean spirit to use Mark's phrase. What an odd phrase to be unclean. 
Let's talk for a second about what it means to be clean and unclean in terms of the Old Testament. This is a phrase that's used a lot in the, in the law, um, but it's probably not terminology that we use a great deal. To be unclean means that it is not able to be used in God's presence. It's not holy, but it doesn't necessarily mean sinful, Right? As an example, and we would use that phrase for thinking of germs, right? You wouldn't want to eat on a plate if it's been touched by something nasty on the ground. If you, uh, if you saw somebody, you know, coughing repeatedly into their hand and they hold it out to shake your hand and you say, no, thank you, you don't want to get the germs. But it's not because the hand is sinful, it's simply become unclean. Well, what's happened in Mark's day is this idea of being clean before God. It never says in the Old Testament that everybody is supposed to be clean all the time. (coughs) That was never an idea that God put forth. He just said, before you go to serve in the temple, you need to do one, two, three, four, five things. But somewhere in the intervening years, people kind of invented this idea that, well, if it's good enough for a priest, it's good enough for me. Therefore, we should be ceremonially unclean all the time. And I want you to know that in the Old Testament, that was never the expectation. But what ends up happening, instead of just being for some of the priests, some of the time, what ends up happening is that Israel tries to maintain constant cleanliness. The Pharisees believe that one should be ceremonial clean at all times or your prayers would be hindered. Your house must be ceremonial clean. Your dishes must be ceremonially clean. And so if anything in your house entered that was unclean or suspect, the whole procedure had to go over again. A friend of mine worked for a McDonald's. I'm not kidding, a McDonald's in a Jewish neighborhood in Louisville, Kentucky, if you can believe it. And a new employee there made the mistake of serving a hamburger with a piece of cheese on it. And for those of you not familiar with that, you cannot mix two animal products in the same meal for those who follow kosher rules. And so, as this cheeseburger left the McDonald's, the other Jewish patrons saw it and just about passed out. This was a travesty. The whole store was shut down. The employees were fired. The rabbi was called back in. The whole thing had to be blessed and fixed again because, obviously, cheeseburgers are evil. I sure hope not. But that entire idea rises up in Pharisaical Judaism. Now, this man is declared unclean, meaning he is outside. He's not an Israelite. He has been hanging out in places that he shouldn't. And here's what the text says right there in verse 3. It says that no one was strong enough to subdue him. There isn't a strong man strong enough to hold back what this guy's got. It says that they have tried to chain him up before, but he breaks it. So you're seeing somebody who is incredibly physically strong, but he is not in his right mind. He terrorizes the region. And as you think about what it would mean for this guy, it means people have tried to lock him up before. A pariah of the city, well-known, howling and making racket, terrorizing local citizens, and yet no one could subdue him. And as Jesus shows up, the mere presence of Jesus, they beg Jesus, don't torture us, son of God. In God's name, they say, they appeal to God himself, please don't destroy us. And so Jesus instead throws the, tells, the lead, tells the demons that they must leave. Before doing so, he asks their name and the demons respy with that cryptic phrase, I am, we are legion, for we are many. And so Jesus casts it into the herd of pigs and 2,000 pigs are killed, and the man is seen sitting in his right mind. 
Jesus' incredible authority, but you've got to admit, it's, the whole scene is kind of spooky. Jesus out on the hills hanging out with a crazy guy in a Gentile region. Pigs are committing suicide because they become demon-possessed. I mean, the whole text is wild. What does it mean to be demon-possessed? And what does it mean that Jesus has authority over even the unclean spirits, even those outside of Israel? Well, what it, means for, what it means to be demon-possessed, I think, is probably a bigger topic than we could handle just in a sermon on a Sunday morning. But let me walk through a couple of things just to maybe answer a few things that we have probably absorbed more from movies than from actual biblical texts. So if you've seen movies like The Exorcist or The Shining, you know, you've got kids who, I know, completely lost control of their body. But what we, we see in the rest of the New Testament especially for someone who's already become a Christian, is that demon possession is not a phrase that's used. In other words, people don't talk about being possessed by a spirit. Instead, they, they use that phrase, right, to be, to be filled with or to be listening to a demon. So there's that text in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, Ananias and Sapphira. They've sold a plot of land and they're going to donate it to the church. And when they donate it to the church, they hold back a little for themselves. But then they tell everybody, we gave all of this land to the church because we're holy. And Peter comes in and says, how could you allow Satan to fill your hearts and lie to the Holy Spirit? So we've got two things going on. In that text, it says, Satan is lying to the Holy Spirit and Annas is still lying to the Holy Spirit. In other words, Ananias has not lost control of his ability to speak. Perhaps a better phrase throughout the New Testament for what Christians wrestle with, we could call it demonic influence. That is, voices and suggestions, like the serpent in the garden next to Eve. It is not that Eve becomes demon-possessed, but rather that she starts listening to a voice that is questioning the character and goodness and promise of God. And just like Eve, there is a temptation for us in our own ears to listen to voices which will draw you from God, which will fill you with anxiety, which will keep you up at night and drive you to do things that are contrary to God's will for your life. What it means to be demon-possessed is not to completely lose control of yourself. What it means instead is to be listening to a voice which is contrary to creation. This man, had, uh, this man has so, has so been, been possessed by a demon that it says that he could no longer be bound. He had gone mad. But in the rest of the early centuries of the church, this type of demon possession is never a fear for a Christian. It is said that the presence of the Holy Spirit makes this kind of possession impossible for those who have inside of their hearts the Holy Spirit. So this man, is then, uh, this man is then cured, and at first it says the town is filled with amazement, but soon afterwards they ask him to leave. After all, this crazy guy might be better, but we did just lose 2,000 pigs. The economics have now come to bear on the situation. All throughout Mark, whether it's destroying household property or these pigs dying, Jesus doesn't have a huge amount of concern for the economic ramifications of what he's doing. But how often does the Spirit of God begin to move and at first people are filled with awe and amazement, but then the reality of the cost and the finances become such a burden that people decide, well, let's rein this in a little bit so we don't get carried away. And Jesus is sent from the region. But let's back up now and look at today's text. How did he get there? Here's what it says. And the day, uh, 
And that day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was, in the boat. And there were also other boats with him. And a furious squall came up, a great storm came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly crushed. The disciples are now out on the Sea of Galilee when a great storm hits. The shape of the Sea of Galilee is like a basin or a bowl. Storms can rise up incredibly quickly. As such, most fishermen in those days would hug very close to the shore. Because there is no fiberglass, there's not a lot of steel, K-Light's not been invented. If a boat gets hit very hard, it sinks. Um, And these guys are professional fishermen. They know when it's dangerous and they are not easy to panic. And yet the disciples are immediately thrown into panic because they know this is the kind of storm that people don't come back from. But a few things to note about their position. First, they're in the storm because of following God's will. They're in the center of God's will. Who told them to go to the other side of the lake? Who said, let's go to the other side of the lake? Jesus. If you're always in doubt in church, you can go with Jesus. Yeah, there in verse 35. Jesus says, let's go to the other side. Which means they're exactly where God wants them. And even though they're exactly in the middle of God's will, they have been hit by a sudden storm. That means the presence of a storm, a disaster, a hardship, an incredibly sudden uh, situation that you are facing is not an indication that you are outside of God's will. Amen? It does not mean that you have done something, you were following God's will, but you must have somehow got off track and that's why the storm has come. In fact, the storm itself is exactly where God wants them to be. It is possible that God allows a storm in your life because of what's going to happen next in the disciples' scene. But for the disciples, as they're uh, going across the lake, here's what they say. The boat is nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, and he's sleeping. And I love Mark's detail here, because Mark gives us a little more than some of the other gospel. He's not just sleeping. He's sleeping on a... On a cushion. He didn't really have to tell us that, but still, it's kind of fun to imagine. Jesus is taking a nap. The disciples are fearing like they were about to die. Have you ever felt like God was asleep? Like you're in the middle of facing your difficulty. You're in the middle of a problem. You're feeling like you're overwhelmed. And in this case, Jesus is actually asleep on the cushion. He's just taking it easy. The disciples are furious that Jesus would be asleep. And so they come to him and they said... Um, And the disciples woke up in him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drowned? Don't you care if we drowned? The disciples calling out to Jesus, Don't you care at all? Is there any concern in you for us? In the midst of the crisis that we face, it's often looking up at God and feeling like God has abandoned us. That cry that Jesus says on the cross, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is not unique to Jesus. Jesus didn't invent that phrase. That is a phrase from the Psalms. That goes all the way back to the Psalms. And in fact, if you read the Psalms, did you know that 60% of the Psalms are lament Lament means there are things, there are times when people are sad or they're upset or they're angry with God. They're not happy. So 40% of the Psalms are praises, but 60% of the Psalms are what? Lament. See, you guys are Bible scholars. Lament. 
And I think that's important for us to remember. Because it seems like at church we give an awful lot of service to praise, don't we? Like there's a lot of room for praise. How great is our God? How, you know, um, how mighty is our God? How powerful is our God? But you need to know in the life of the Christian, in the sanctified original songbook of the early church, the book of Psalms, 60% of the Psalms are saying things like, don't you care that we're drowning? Where are you? God, I need you to wake up and intervene on my behalf. The reminder for me is that the normal life of the Christian is going to involve times of storm and wilderness and difficulty, seasons of doubt and frustration. And the cry of the Christian is not to paint over it with gloss and say, well, I'm just going to say praises. At times, it is saying, we are allowed to cry out to God, God, where are you in the storm? He got up and rebuked the waves. He said to the waves... Quiet, be still. And the wind died down and it was calm completely. Jesus gets up and he yells at the storm for being out of line. Hush your mouth now. Sit down. Be quiet. No one told you you were allowed to speak. And the storm itself goes silent. Jesus looks right at the situation that moments before seemed absolutely inescapable. And the authority of Jesus declares the situation over. He yells at the situation. He says this is not going to happen. But the disciples already should know that they're going to get to the other side because Jesus has said, we're going to the other side. But they needed the reminder of Jesus' authority in order to get there. Here's what he says. He said to his disciples, why were you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. There's two words in this text for fear. One is for being afraid and one is for being greatly afraid. When the storm first creeps up, the disciples say they are afraid. And then here, now that they've seen Jesus speak, they're even more terrified. The storm's gone, but now they've suddenly realized that if Jesus can say that to the storm, jeez, who is this guy? Their fear has moved from the storm to Jesus. Their fear has moved from what the storm might do to me to Well, gosh, maybe we should take Jesus more seriously. You see, throughout Mark's gospel, this question of authority, I am who I say that I am. I am the strong man who can bind up all the forces of evil. I can confront the systems of injustice. I can break the yoke of slavery. I can. And here we have Jesus even yelling at the waves. Listen up. And the disciples move their fear from the storm to where it ought to be. And that is to to fear God. God is a God alone is over this situation, despite how pressing the storm may be. And the authority of Jesus is established even over creation. In the beginning, God intended for humanity to rule over creation. God said to men and women, you are going to be lords over creation. All the beasts of the field will, uh, are underneath you. All the birds of the air and the, all the sea will listen to you. And I don't know if you've been in a park lately, but if a lion is chasing you and you say, listen, lion, I'm a human being and I've been given authority by God, and I say, stop, they don't listen. 
In fact, it would seem like since the fall, creation has actually had a real hard time with humanity. That a small bump in a storm, whether it's animals or it's natural disasters, human beings are often at odds from creation. We're trying to build shelters to simply protect us from creation. But it doesn't take much of a storm or an earthquake or a drought to remind us that we are subject to creation. But here Jesus steps into the role that you and I were designed for, authority over creation, and Jesus Jesus alone bears the image. I am the image of God on earth. You see, you don't just need somebody who has authority, but you need somebody who has authority who's willing to listen. I've talked about uh, calling up somebody at a business when you are needing help or somebody at a hospital who has enough authority to give you the medicine that you want. You need someone who's listening on your behalf. Because often if you go into a shop and you ask for somebody who's sympathetic, they're kind to you, but they don't have any power. And the people who have power aren't really being kind to you. And the term here is that Jesus has both the authority to forgive sins and yet the compassion to sympathize with us in our weakness. He is with the disciples in the storm. Now, throughout the rest of Mark's gospel, as we transition this week, what I want you to see is that the gospel is going to take a decidedly different direction. Up until chapter 8, the question has been uh, about the authority of Jesus. But now the question will become, what is he going to do with that authority? Since he is the king over the waves, since he is the king even able to command demons, since he is the rightful king, what does the rightful king look like? And from this point in Mark's gospel going forward, we will now be walking in the shadow of the cross that true leadership does not look like we expect For not only is Jesus' authority greater than we'd expect, but what he does with it is unparalleled in human history. So as we move toward this time of response, if you've not been reading through Mark's gospel, pick it back up in chapter 8. Pick it up this week and say, I'm going to start reading in chapter 8 and follow through. What does it look like when somebody has the authority to command the waves? When somebody has the authority to command demons? When somebody has the authority to forgive sins? When somebody has the authority over disease? What would it look like if that kind of king came and walked among us? And from chapter 8, we will get an unexpected answer. If you're here today and inside of Christ, uh, that is, you've made a covenant decision to follow him. During this next song, we would uh, ask you to come and take uh, from the right or from the left up here. This is the bread which represents the body that was broken for you and the cup which represents the new covenant. But if you're here today and never have made that decision, we would love to talk with you as we move closer to Easter about what it means to follow this king who has authority unparalleled but uses it in the way that we would never expect. Would you stand with us as we sing our song of response?